All right, back in Exodus chapter 20, and we will read verses 1 to 6, but tonight we're focusing on verses 4 to 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment one. Secondly, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, last week, we looked at the first commandment and we learned a number of things. We learned that because this is a command for the New Testament church, that this is quite relevant for us here and now today. We learned that Jesus both modeled obedience to the first commandment and also commanded it for his followers. We learned that Jesus referred to the first and greatest commandment in his teaching. And we learned that it is, in a sense, a springboard commandment, a foundational commandment, because it, um, it invites us into obedience to God's entire law, and because when we break any of God's commandments, we inherently break the first commandment to have no other gods as well. So just as a reminder, just as a refresher and a review, Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. And the scope of this commandment is that it is intended to um, govern our relationship to the supernatural realm. Talks about our religious allegiances. In a negative sense, it is a command that tells us that we are not to worship any real or imagined supernatural power other than the triune God. It is a command that we do not give our ultimate love, trust, reverence, and thanks to anyone other than God. In a positive sense, it commands us to worship the triune God, to worship him alone, and to give him and only him our ultimate love, trust, reverence, and thanks. The main thrust of the first commandment is that since the Lord is who he is and since the Lord has done what he has done, he will not share his worship and praise he will not share his service. He will not share his glory with any other. Another way to say this would be that God teaches us through his word that he is exclusive. He alone deserves our glory, or deserves to be glorified, to be honored, and to be exalted. He calls us to complete and comprehensive loyalty to himself. And he calls us to worship him with absolute devotion in all of life. So now, this evening, we turn our attention to the second commandment. Now, the second commandment, as I mentioned last week, also pertains to worship. 
The, the first commandment deals with who we worship or the object of our worship. The second commandment deals with how we worship or the practice of worship. In other words, it answers the question, what is the right way to worship the one true God of the universe? So commandment two, simply put, is do not make or worship idols. And the scope of this commandment is that it governs our worship of the one true God. In a negative sense, you could state it this way, do nothing in worship that detracts or distracts us from God. In a positive sense, you would say, worship only in ways that draw attention to God and worship the triune God in spirit and in truth. Now, I would argue that the second commandment teaches us three things. It teaches us how we are to think about God. It teaches us how we are to worship God based on those thoughts. And it teaches us that how we think about God and how we worship God is extremely important to him. So God has given us the gift of his perfectly sufficient and authoritative word. Therefore, God's self-disclosure and self-revelation are to dominate the way that we think about him. Verse four says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. This is fairly straightforward. God is commanding his people not to try to make images of him. Now, of course, they're not to make images of false gods, but they are not to make images of him either. However, the way this verse is phrased, it might sound like, like God is saying to his people that they are not to engage in artwork of any kind. Do not make an idol in the form of anything in heaven or on earth or in the waters under the earth. It might sound as though we're not to draw anything. It might sound as though we're not to paint anything, that we are forbidden from developing any sort of media, that we cannot pursue the visual arts in any capacity. But... Based on other scripture references, and we hold to the principle of allowing scripture to interpret scripture, okay? Based on other scripture references, that is clearly not the thrust of this commandment. That is not what this commandment means. For example, in this very book, God will both command and equip his people to create certain pieces of artwork to furnish the tabernacle, the place of worship, just as Zach mentioned to the kids. He's gonna have them make pomegranates and, and leaves and, and winged cherubim to sit over the Ark of the Covenant, etc. Those are just a, a few things that he is going to command and equip them to make. So obviously, the purpose of the second commandment is not to prohibit the creation of art. However, it is clear from this commandment that God does not want his people to try to portray him in any way. He is not to be visually represented. 
A little bit more comprehensive treatment of this can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where it says, starting in verse 15, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. So the second commandment not only prohibits visual representations of false gods, it prohibits uh, guessing at visual representations of the one true God. That point is made very clearly as Zach told the kids in Exodus chapter 32. I mentioned it last week as well. The account of the golden calf. Now, when Aaron made that golden calf, he presented it as an image of the God of Israel who brought his people out of Egypt. In other words, he wasn't saying, people, God has gotten us this far, but we're going to kind of abandon him now and transfer our allegiance to another God. No, the golden calf was an attempted image of the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. Aaron, by this act, was not trying to to hijack the religion. He was attempting to visually represent the one true God. Why? Because human beings are naturally drawn toward gods that they can see and that they can touch. Because gods that can be seen and touched can be controlled and managed as well, right? They're they're less intimidating than than something that is unseen, something that is, is too great to be comprehended. And so God says, no. God says, no. Any image that you try to make of me will be a misrepresentation. You are going to get it wrong. Therefore, don't do it. But you know, that said, I also want you to see this and I want you to understand this. God commands us not to make visual representations of him. He commands us not to make images of him. However, God does not leave us in the dark about who he is. God discloses and reveals himself in the gift that we have of the Bible. He reveals and discloses himself in the gift of his word to us. And he wants that to dominate our conception and our understanding of him. Not our experiences, not our innovations, not our imaginations, not our opinions, and not our representations. In other words, the thrust of the second commandment is that God's own word, the Bible, is to be the source of our ideas about God. And I want you to understand why this is so important and it is so crucial to our worship. 
Because see, if, if we were given free reign to think about God however we wanted, if we were given permission to picture God in accordance with our own imaginations, instead of thinking God's thoughts after him, then in a sense, we will have assumed some kind of sovereignty over God. That it's our conceptions that define God rather than God defining himself for us. Heidelberg Catechism deals with the second commandment in Lord's Day 35. There's three questions included in this Lord's Day and they too are very short, so I wanna read them quickly. It starts at question and answer 96 where it asks, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? And answers that we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. May we not then make any image at all? God cannot and will not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images if one's intention is to worship them or to serve God through them. And finally, question 98, but may not images be permitted in the churches as teaching aids for the unlearned? No, we shouldn't try to be wiser than God. He wants his people instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. So by God demanding that he not be visually represented, it requires us only to conceive of him as he describes himself in his word. God says to us in the midst of this image-dominated culture, when you think about me, think about me only as I have revealed myself in the Bible because images will inevitably distort me. And representations will inevitably distort me. And your imaginations will inevitably distort me. So, he says, if you truly want to know me, you have to know me by my word. Now that is, that is huge. And that is pertinent for us, that God will not allow us to come to him with our own preconceptions. He loves us too much. He knows us too well. He knows that we are going to miss significant things about him and that our faith is going to be harmed rather than built up if we um, assume that kind of sovereignty over who God is. It will lead to nothing but trouble. So the, t the second commandment teaches us how we are to think about God. Second commandment also teaches us how we are to worship God. Verses four and five again say, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, I think that the great challenge of our age with regard to worship, and we've already been talking about it, is mental and volitional. It is the temptation to create mental images of God that are inconsistent with his word. 
I mean, perhaps we wouldn't even go so far as to say that they're inconsistent, but at least they're incomplete. Let me give you a prime example. Is God a God of love? Let me see some nods of the heads. Is God a a God of justice? Yes, he is. God is a God of judgment, he is a God of mercy, he's a God of love, he's a God of justice. Inevitably, inevitably, if left to our own devices, left to our own thoughts, left to our own imaginations, unaided by God's word and unbalanced with God's word, then we are inevitably going to fall on one of those emphases or another. And that will give us an unclear and untrue picture of God. We have a tendency to seek and to serve the God that we want, not the God who is. But see, when we worship the God that we want rather than the God who truly is, we are not worshiping the true God, and that is a breaking of the second commandment. The Lord of heaven and earth tells us that we must worship him according to his word. The Bible is to determine how we worship. The Bible is to determine who we worship and how we worship. That said, I think a good rule of thumb for a Bible-believing church is this. And I'm just gonna say I stole this from somewhere. But it's sing the Bible, pray the Bible, read the Bible, preach the Bible. If we can categorize everything that we do in worship content-wise into singing the Bible, praying the Bible, reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, we have done well and gone a long way toward obedience corporately to the second commandment. Why? Because as I said, the Bible is to provide the substance and the form of our worship so that we might be sure that we are worshiping in spirit and in truth. Not in accordance with our human imaginations and vain understandings, but in accordance with God's own word. And that is why God says no image making. That is why God says you can't worship him in a way that he hasn't commanded. Because if you worship him in any way that you want to worship him, you may end up worshiping something other than him. As a matter of fact, you inevitably will. Therefore, because worship creates a culture, because worship in a sense creates God's people, because how you worship determines what you become, we worship God the way that he has told us to worship in his word. So now we come to the final point and learn a third thing. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. As God's people, We are to refrain from making and worshiping idols, including images of God himself because of who God is, because of what God warns, 
and because of what God promises. So let's quickly look at those three things. Who is God, according to Exodus 20, verses four through six? He is a jealous God. He is jealous. And I gave you a quick definition last week of what it means that God is jealous. He is jealous, meaning that he is loving and he is nurturing and he is fiercely protective of what is his. And that includes you, that includes me, and that includes the praise and honor and obedience and love and worship that we offer him. That's who God is, a jealous God, jealous of what is his. And we have the privilege of saying, yes, that includes me. We belong to him. Thank God that he is a jealous God and that he will not let me be snatched from his hand. That's who God is. Now, what is his warning When he tells us about how he desires us to worship him, he goes on to describe the consequences of disobedience to this commandment. He will punish to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. And I know what you're thinking because I've thought it before too. Not that I'm saying that we're the same, but I'm guessing that anybody who has read those words carefully probably stopped and said, hey, wait a minute, that doesn't sound fair. The first generation sins, and then he punishes the next three generations? What what is that about? Well, I want you to keep your eye on the ball here. What we're being told here is that God is strict in his justice. And I want you to notice that he describes those who are disobedient to this commandment as those who hate him, okay? Okay? So God is saying, if you don't keep this command, it is an expression of hate toward me. And I will pursue it all the way to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, of those who disobey this command. This is a sign of God's strict justice. But I want you to look at it this way. The pursuit to that extent, to the third and fourth generation, is a sign of God's love. And the punishment that this implies is a sign of God's justice. And I want to make this really clear that both of those things, God's love and his justice, are meant to call guilty sinners to repentance. And so ultimately, this whole package is a gift of grace to us. And notice what he goes on to say. He gives this beautiful word of promise, a word of compassion and mercy and blessing. He says, I will show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Just as Jesus said to his own disciples on the night he was betrayed, if you love me, keep my commands. You see, in a very real and fundamental sense, to love God is to keep his commandments. And I want you to notice, even as you compare God's word of warning 
to God's word of promise in Exodus 20, you can clearly see the character of God here, that he delights in showing mercy and compassion so much more than he delights in the condemnation of sinners. That is who God is. That is his nature. He is a God of justice and of love. He is a God of mercy and of judgment. But all of those things work together for the good of his people. All of those things are a call to his people for them to come. To come to his arms of forgiveness. And so the way that we worship is a reflection of our knowledge of that God that we gain from his revealed word. And it is a reflection of how seriously we take this God who has represented himself in and by his word. And one final thing. Because the second commandment emphasizes that it is God who determines how we worship him. I just want to mention the most important thing to know about how we are called to worship him. How we are called to worship him. Brothers and sisters, we cannot worship the one true God unless we come to him through Jesus Christ, the Son which means that the one thing we need to do in order to obey this second commandment is to acknowledge and worship Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior and our King. And to come into the presence of our Heavenly Father clinging to his sacrifice and his person. Amen. Let's pray.